Welcome to The Faith Explained. This is Cale Clark. Open up your Bible to Romans chapter 15 as we continue our series, Romans, Can You Handle the Truth? This is what St. Paul says we start off the penultimate chapter in Romans. I'm just going to read the first six verses of chapter 15. Paul writes, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to edify him. For Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's uh, stop there for, for just a moment. You know, the GOAT, in basketball terms, is pretty much universally acknowledged to be Michael Jordan. Although, there, there's certainly an argument to be made for Wilt Chamberlain. Not too many people bring up Wilt in the GOAT conversation, but I digress. I, I'd probably have to give the nod slightly to Jordan here, too. But one of the things that Jordan was very famous for saying early in his career was this. When he was asked about, you know, is he taking too many shots? Is he being a little bit too selfish? Are the Bulls relying a little bit too much on his offense? A sports writer once asked him sarcastically, hey, have you ever heard the line, there's no I in team, in the word team? But Jordan very quickly responded, "Uh, there may not be an I in team, but there is in win. (laughs) All right, so as funny as that is, Jordan really never did achieve championship-level success, despite heroic individual efforts, uh, thinking notably of his 63 points against the Boston Celtics in the 1986 playoffs, even though they lost that game. And the Boston Celtics of that year are probably the greatest team in basketball history. I'm already creating a lot of controversy on the show today. Jordan himself never won a championship until 1991, until Bulls general manager Jerry Krause surrounded him with other talent, supporting characters other pros who would put their ego aside and do what was best for the team so the team could actually win. But during his first retirement, uh, Jordan's second banana on the bowl, Scottie Pippen, he hadn't really learned that lesson of sacrifice. And in the 1994 Eastern Conference Finals, Pippen, when he found out that Coach Phil Jackson did not draw up a play for him to take the last shot and hopefully win the game against the Indiana Pacers, he took himself out of the game. He sat down and refused to go on the court. The play was drawn up for for Tony Kukoc, who did hit the shot. The Bulls won, and Pippen looked really bad in the process and and has never really lived that down. It was uh, famously included in the Last Dance documentary about the Chicago Bulls that recently aired. But this, this concept of being willing to be unselfish, to sacrifice for the good of the team, that's exactly what St. Paul is telling the Romans right now in chapter 15. And, and like a good coach, he's exhorting them. He's giving them kind of a halftime speech like Phil Jackson might have done for the Bulls. And he's saying, you've really got to follow the example of the true goat, the true goat of goats, the greatest of all time, and that is Jesus Christ. We have to pattern our lives after him. And again, the, the particular issue of play is 
the dispute between those who are quote unquote strong and those who are quote unquote weak. And Paul here in the first verse, he he says that he's one of the strong. He actually kind of self-identifies. Okay, I'm gonna put my cards on the table here. I'm one of the strong Catholics. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So the weak were those who who just couldn't get past the the reality that the kosher food laws, other ceremonial works of the law, like circumcision, they were not in effect in the new covenant. But as Jews would come to realize Jesus was the Messiah, as Jewish Catholics, they did have the option of continuing in these ways. And Paul says, that's fine. You don't need to, but if you feel compelled to, that's your thing. But other people who know that you don't have to do these things should not be pressuring you to drop them. These are these strong Catholics who know that in the New Covenant, the moral law of God continues, but the ceremonial works can be done, dispensed with, done away with. So what Paul is saying here is those of us who know this ought to do more than simply put up with uh, those who just can't kind of, they may be, don't look at them as being somehow weaker in the faith. Try to help them. Try to build them up, just like Jesus would do. Emulate the goat. Because what did Jesus do? Look at what he says here in verse 2. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For, this is verse 3, even Christ did not please himself, as it says in one translation. He didn't please himself. He wasn't looking out for his own. He didn't want to take the last shot in every game. He could give up the rock to a teammate, as it were. So Christ freely gave up his rights, even his right to life. And the right to life is the most paramount of all rights. But he freely laid down his life on the cross so that you and I might have eternal life. And so this is very, very important here. The other thing that's really intriguing is that Paul notes, uh, he kind of quotes a psalm that most Catholics probably haven't thought too much about in relation to the life of Jesus Christ. And we'll get into more of this in just a moment. But in verse 3, Paul wrote, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. As it is written where? Well, that comes from Psalm number 69. And it's a psalm that the New Testament writers relied on heavily in teaching about Jesus Christ, but you haven't probably heard too much about it. We'll get, we'll get into that in just a second. But let's look at verse 4 now. Paul says, and this is kind of a sidebar verse. It's really not related to anything he's talking about. He says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And he just finishes quoting the Old Testament here. And as we talked about on a recent Q&A, the Old Testament has continuing relevance for us as Catholics in the New Covenant time. That's why we read it every time at Mass. It's part of the liturgy of the Word. The vast majority of the Bible is the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. But the message is not old. It's just as fresh as ever because the Holy Spirit inspired these writings too. And so Paul says everything was written for was was written to teach us. It was for us. It's for you now. It's for Catholic Christians now, as well as for the people of God in the past. And so it's really important. And the ultimate goal of all of this is hope. Paul says, through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
Now, now in, in the past, we talked about the great encyclical of Benedict XVI, Space Salvi, Saved in Hope, which is another quote from Romans earlier in the book. But I think there's something a little bit different here that's going on. Paul is alluding to stuff that he probably has taught in the past. In one of his other letters, in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 12, he reminds converts to Catholicism from a Gentile background, from a pagan background. He reminds them that, hey, don't forget that you were once without God and once without hope in the world. You didn't have any hope. You were hopeless. So don't forget that the only reason you have hope is because you have been integrated into the people of God, into the root of Israel, and now it's just Israel with the Messiah in play. And that's that's what the Catholic Church really is. And so never forget that, and, and don't be proud, don't be arrogant, because a lot depends on everybody working together in the church as a team. That's how we win. That's really how we win together. And so put aside all these petty differences. Let's build one another up. Try to follow Jesus. Try to model yourself after Christ. Okay, so let's just stop here for a moment and focus on, because I think you'll, you'll be intrigued by this, Psalm 69, because Paul's quoting it here. I bet you don't know how much this has to do with the life of Jesus. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. When we think about psalms that have to do with the life of Jesus, usually we think about Psalm 22, and, and we don't have time to read the whole thing, but you can look it up. There's so much in there that's related to the passion of the Christ. For example, I'm just going to read you a couple selections here. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have we heard that before? Uh, let's look at verse 6. I am a worm, not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. That was verse 8. So very, very um, prophetic about uh, those who mocked Jesus while he was on the cross. It goes on and on, but uh, a couple more things here. I can count all my, oh, sorry, dogs have surrounded me, verse 16. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Well, I mean, this is the crucifixion and written, obviously, centuries before the time of Christ. So Psalm 22 is one that we're super familiar with when it comes to uh, the Old Testament prophecies of Christ. But Psalm 69 is what Paul quotes here in Romans 15, and it also has tons to do with Jesus. Now, it's a psalm attributed to David, and Jesus, of course, as you know, is the son of David, and he kind of walks in David's sandals. He walks in his footsteps as he is a much greater son of David because he is the divine son of God. So there's really, really kind of four main divisions to Psalm 69 here. Number one, David talks about how he is suffering in an unjust manner just as Jesus suffered unjustly. Number two, he asks God to deliver him. Number three, he wants God to defeat, punish, you know, really just argh, take care of his enemies. And then the last thing is he gives praise to God because he knows God is faithful and God will deliver him and save him. 
So this is what's known as a toda psalm, and we've talked about these before. Uh, toda, you know, toda means thanksgiving, and people would offer a toda sacrifice when God had delivered them from a great trial. And one could even say there was a sacrifice very often involving bread and involving wine. The Eucharist is a toda meal; it's a Thanksgiving meal. In thanksgiving for the great deliverance God has done from the ultimate enemies, sin, death, and the devil. We give thanks to him every time we celebrate the Mass. But all, every single one of the Gospel writers quote Psalm 69 in reference to Jesus, especially Psalm 69, verse 21. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. All the evangelists quote that because that's what happened to Jesus when he was on the cross. Look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 34. Even Jesus himself quoted Psalm 69 in talking about himself. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 25, he talks about people hating him without cause or for no reason. And so this is exactly why Paul mentions this here in Romans chapter 15, when he says, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you fell on me. Those who insulted God, those reproaches eventually fell upon Jesus. <laughs> also, interestingly, in Psalm 69, it talks about how Judas, it sort of prophesies uh, uh, the betrayal of Judas. Let's look at Psalm 69, verse 25. Now, here's what it says. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. And in the Acts of the Apostles, in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, it talks about Judas's place being deserted because of what he did. He just kind of, his inheritance has gone kaput. Uh, his, 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 he could have been a legend, uh, could have been a contender. He could have been one of the greatest apostles of all time if he had come back and repented as Peter did, but he didn't. Uh, he went the other way. So Psalm 69 was quoted uh, all over the place when it comes to the life of Jesus and, and the passion of the Christ. Here's another thing from Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house consumes me. Jesus himself uh, did exactly this. This is what uh, John the, the evangelist notes in John chapter 2 when Jesus uh, commits his action in the temple, the so-called cleansing of the temple John notes, zeal for your house will consume me. So that is applied to him as well. Very, very important. So all of this section of Romans here, chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, this is all about the example of Jesus. What Paul is saying in the midst of all these specific issues that they're dealing with, these specific problems that are happening in the church at Rome the way to solve any issue, any division in the church, is follow the example of Jesus. Again, what would Jesus do? And right now, some of the people in the church at Rome were not being like Jesus. They weren't looking to serve others. They wanted to be served. And that's the exact opposite of what Jesus did. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, and I would say also as an example for many, because the example of Jesus is brought up again and again and again in the scriptures. Another place where this uh, comes into play, especially in Paul's writings, 
is in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. I'm just going to look this up very quickly for you. In Philippians 2, Paul says this, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now listen to this. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus gives up all of his privileges as God Almighty in order to serve you and me. So what excuse do we have? If Jesus can do that, we have to do this for our brothers and sisters. There's no question about this. We have to look to the interests of others and think the way that Jesus thought, act the way that Jesus acted. And so this is exactly what St. Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 15. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. Again, following his example. This is verse 5. Then verse 6, so that, what's the point of this? So that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the Father and God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you need unity for this to happen. You need teamwork. You've got to be on the same page, acting as one. And that's one of the reasons why I love the, the game of basketball so much. There are five players. But just like the five fingers on your hand might reach out and open a door, when, when five players work together in harmony, it is a beautiful thing to behold. The Chicago Bulls championship teams of the 1990s had that. Do we have that in the church in a spiritual sense? Are we acting like Jesus? Are we serving our brothers and sisters? Are we, or are we really just kind of claiming our own prerogatives and quote-unquote rights in such a way that we're being uncharitable to one another? Really important things to think about, really important things to ponder. Let's try to be just like Jesus. For The Faith Explained, I'm Cale Clark. We'll catch you in the next episode as we continue our study on Romans. And right now it's time for The Faith Explained Q&A Mailbag. Yes, you can send in your questions to me at this email address, faith at relevantradio.com. And of course, if you're listening on the Relevant Radio app. We're so grateful. Won't you share this program with a friend? Let's go to our Q&A mailbag right now. Okay, as we open up our mailbag today, I want to first of all remind you that you can send me your question about the Catholic faith. You can email me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com. That's the Faith Explained mailbag email address. And you can also, of course, try to find me on Twitter at Kale Clark is my handle. And you can try to get your question to me on that service as well. All right, so today's first question comes to me from Donna, who's listening in Detroit, Michigan, on the Relevant Radio app. And she asks, Hi, Kale. 
Why do you Catholics use the deuterocanonical books as scripture? None of these books are actually cited in the New Testament. Okay, that, that's that's a very good question. Thank you for that, Donna. And a, a lot of people say this, that you really can't um, say that a book is scripture if it's not cited in the New Testament. It can't possibly be uh, sacred scripture. If the New Testament writers, people like St. Paul or even Jesus in the Gospels, if he's not quoting some of these books, then how is it that, that maybe they didn't think they were scripture? Well, that that's not true. That's certainly not true. Um, there are a lot... <laughs> Catholic apologist Tim Staples, you know, once said that, hey, there, there are a lot of books in the Old Testament that are never quoted in the New Testament. It doesn't mean that they're not scripture, though. Think about the book of Ecclesiastes. That's not quoted in the New Testament. The Song of Solomon, or it's also called the Song of Songs, uh, not quoted in the New Testament. What about the book of Nahum, right? The book of Zephaniah, uh, the book of Nehemiah, the book of Ezra. Uh, the book of Obadiah, the book of Esther, Queen Esther, that they're not quoted, but they're in the Protestant canon of the Old Testament. And don't forget that when we talk about this idea of the canon, the word canon means measuring stick, by the way, the list of, of books in the Bible, when we're talking about what are called the deuterocanonical books, and the word deut deuterocanonical, it means the second canon, deuterocanon, the second canon and these are really Old Testament books. They're Old Testament scriptural books. Um, Protestants refer to them as the Apocrypha. And they're often tacked on at the end of their Bibles or the end of their Old Testaments, but they don't refer to them as scripture. But we Catholics say, yes, they are scripture. They're part of the Old Testament. So both Protestants and Catholics have the exact same number of New Testament books, 27. So it's, it's, it's not the best argument to say that uh, if a book isn't quoted in the New Testament, then it, it can't be scripture in the Old Testament. Because again, there are lots of books that aren't quoted. Um, the scholar Richard Hayes, Richard M. Hayes, uh, once wrote a book called Echoes of Scripture in the Letters of Paul. And he shows how St. Paul is not only familiar with some of these books, but he's familiar with the Greek version of these books and the Septuagint. It was probably the Bible uh, that St. Paul would, would use most of all as his Old Testament. And a lot of these books, of course, uh, were, were considered uh, part of the, um, the package of Scripture there in the Septuagint. But nonetheless, um, here, here's some examples of how maybe they're not necessarily quoted in the New Testament, but a lot of the deuterocanonical books in the Old Testament are alluded to in the New Testament. That's, that's this is really interesting. So, uh, Staples gives a, a couple of examples here. Uh, think about the book of Sirach, the wisdom of Ben Sirach. Sirach 28, verse 2. Forgive your neighbor's injustice. Then when you pray, your own sins will be forgiven. Okay, now compare that to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. If you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. That sounds an awful lot like what it says in Sirach. Forgive your neighbor's injustice. Then when you pray, your own sins will be forgiven. So very much in continuity with the teaching of our Lord. And, th and that makes sense, right? If, if Jesus' teaching is completely out of left field, some people might say, hang on here. How, how can Jesus' teaching echo the Old Testament? Don't you know he's God? You know, he, he can say whatever he wants and, it, and, it's, and it's the word of God. Of course he can. But he is in continuity with 
with the Jewish tradition of the Old Testament. Otherwise, nobody would have thought he was the Messiah. But they clearly did, right? So he, he's not, if it was completely out of left field, people would have said, oh, he's a lawbreaker. And some of them did try to say that, but it, it's simply not the case. All right, let's give a couple more examples here from deuterocanonical books, um, which we consider scripture in the Catholic Church. Uh, Protestant Christians do not, but they are alluded to in the New Testament. What about the book of Tobit? Tobit chapter 4, verse 16 says, See that you never do to another what you would hate to have done to you by another. Okay, now compare that to Matthew seven twelve. Jesus says, do to others whatever you would have them do to you. Okay, so, so Tobit, once again, Tobit four sixteen says, see that you never do to another what you would hate to have done to you by another. Jesus says, do to others whatever you would have them do to you. Now, it's a little bit different, obviously, Jesus's commandment is much more open-ended. It's much more challenging. He doesn't say, don't do something to somebody else. It's the golden rule, you know, don't do to somebody what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Well, Jesus is much more challenging, right? He says, do to others what you would like to have them do to you. Okay, so it's much more creative. It's much more challenging. All right, what about the wisdom of Solomon? In the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 26, it says, For wisdom is the reflection of eternal light, the spotless mirror of the power of God, the image of his goodness. Now compare that to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, The sun is the reflection of his glory, the very imprint of his being, and who sustains all things by his mighty word. That sounds pretty similar to me, and I'm sure it does to you as well. So, all right, let, let's keep going here. Another one from the Book of Wisdom, chapter 9, verse 13. For what man knows God's counsel, or who can conceive what the Lord intends? Who can conceive what the Lord intends? Well, let's see what it says in Romans eleven thirty-four. It says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? So that's very similar to what it says in Romans nine thirteen. For what man knows God's counsel, or who can conceive what the Lord intends? And St. Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty four again, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, right? Nobody tells the Lord what to do. And so it, you can see how, again, St. Paul is very steeped in scripture, echoes of scripture in the letter, in the letters of Paul, as uh, Richard Hayes would put it. So we, we do see, although maybe these books aren't quoted directly, they're certainly alluded to these deuterocanonical books. And I think it's, uh, I think it's a it's certainly the case that the earliest Christians thought these books were the Word of God. And my thanks to Tim Staples for those quotations. And if you have a question, you can certainly send it to me in the Faith Explained mailbag. The address is faith at relevantradio.com. This is Kale Clark, and we'll see you later today on the Kale Clark Show, live at 5 p.m. Central right here on Relevant Radio, and tomorrow at 12.30 Central or any time on the Relevant Radio app for the Faith Explained. God bless you.